Welcome to episode 169 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Scott Augenbaum who served in the FBI for nearly 30 years, six as a support employee and 24 as a special agent. His first agent assignment was the Syracuse division, where he became the cyber guy, working almost exclusively cyber crime cases. In this episode, Scott reviews several cyber crime cases and provides several cybersecurity tips that he learned during his FBI career that will protect you from cyber criminals who want to steal your stuff. During his FBI career, Scott Augenbaum was promoted to the Cyber Division Cyber Crime Fraud Unit at FBI headquarters. He was later transferred to the Memphis Division, where he helped launch the FBI's first local computer intrusion counterintelligence squad. During the last 10 years of Scott Augenbaum's FBI career, he provided more than 1,000 cybercrime threat briefings to corporations and other public groups to educate the community on emerging computer intrusion threats and how to avoid being the victim of a data breach. After retiring from the Bureau, Scott launched Hero Publishing, a company devoted to educating the public about the dangers of cyber crimes and authored The Secret to Cybersecurity, a simple plan to protect your family and business from cybercrime. You can learn more about Scott Augenbaum and his book by visiting his website, scottaugenbaum.com. I think you're going to learn a lot from this interview. Yes, Scott taught me a few things too. Before we get to the interview, I just have one thing. I never have just one thing, but I did want to remind you that I sent out my June reader team email on Monday, June the 3rd. So if you're a member of my reader team and you don't see it in your inbox, yep, you know what to do. Check your spam filter. In this month's reader team email, I let you know what you need to do if you want to apply for the scholarship that I am giving away for the She Podcast Live conference in Atlanta in October. When they announced the dates of the conference, I knew I wasn't going to be able to attend, but I bought myself a virtual ticket and then I bought a ticket for a listener because I know there is someone out there who's been thinking about starting a podcast and I want to support you the way that you've supported me. I provide more details about that scholarship in my June reader team email. I am so excited about myths and misconceptions. In each chapter, I discuss one of my top 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and provide a reality check while breaking down the facts. Throughout the book, I use quotes and snippets from some of the retired agents about how the real FBI works. I also review popular films and fiction featuring FBI agent characters. While you're waiting for the book to be published, why not join my reader team and get the FBI reality checklist to discover the top 20 FBI myths and misconceptions. You can join my reader team at jerrywilliams.com or if you're listening on a podcast app that supports links, you can join in the description of this episode. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Scott Augenbaum. Hi, Scott. How are you? Good morning, Jerry. It's so good to be on your podcast today. I am super excited to share with you and your listeners a little bit about my story with the FBI and what I'm doing now. 
Well, that's great because, you know, cybersecurity is a hot topic. As a matter of fact, I have a quick story to tell you. I've been doing this podcast for over three years because my topic surrounded the FBI, that I might be a target for just somebody playing around. Not necessarily, they're not going to hack me and get any money, but, you know, they certainly could take down my, my website. So, Luckily, I signed up for a service called Updraft, and I never had to use it, but it was about three or four weeks ago, I got an email from one of the listeners, Pascal. Hi, Pascal, because I know you're listening. And he let me know that he was able to get into my website, but when he clicked on any of the podcast episodes or any of my blog posts, it took him to somebody else's website and so, yeah, it was like, what? And not so a I, good day. No, not a good day. I started to panic. And then I thought, wait a minute. That's why you've been paying all this money, you know, for the service. And I was able to just click on it and upload. Go back in time. And yeah, I, I went back in time. Copy. Yep, I went back in time and I got a fresh copy. And so if it happens again, you know, I know that I can breathe easy. I can just go in, you know, refresh the page and everything's good. So that's my story. I think I should get some bonus points from you because I was prepared. Do I get any bonus points? You do get some bonus points, but I'm going to really show you and your listeners how to make sure that stuff really doesn't happen again. Because just l let's think about this, Jerry. If the bad guys get into your website or if they get into your email, they're going to send out emails to all of your followers and they might infect those emails with malicious code because your listeners are going to think it's coming from you and then you're going to affect them all and then it's going to be very very bad for your brand and those are some of the things that i really wanted to sit down and talk to you about today just on my experiences that i have seen with within the fbi if you would have told me that 31 years ago, I would be retired from the FBI, wrote a book on cybercrime, living in Nashville, Tennessee. I would have said, not my life. I grew up in New York City. I became a support employee for the FBI in 1988, became an agent in 1994, and I was sent to Syracuse, New York for my first office of assignment. And, you know, if you would ask me to define the role of an FBI agent in 1994, 95, I would have said it's really easy to do. And I'm sure you remember these days. What did we do? There were bad people doing bad things to good people in my geographical area, which was the Northern District of New York. And I worked with state and local cops and I put bad guys in jail. Remember those days, Jerry? Yeah, I do. So how did you become the cyber guy? Well, that's the funny story behind that. I happened to be working bank robberies and fugitives and drug cases and all those types of fun things. Like That's why I joined the FBI. And in 1996 or so, I got a phone call from a small internet service provider that wanted to talk about selling stolen property on these things called bulletin boards. And I was like, what do you mean a bulletin board? And those were online communities. And I went over there and I met with him and he showed me all this really cool stuff, you know, computers and color. Now, when I was working on an MBA in Fordham University in New York in the early 90s, we had access to computers. So I had a little bit of a technology background, not much. I knew how to put a floppy disk into a computer and connect an America online. And I was online and off to the races. But at that point in time, I remember I went out and I bought a home computer and this was 1996. When I talk to audiences, I always say, hey, can anyone tell me that anyone remember the days of DOS? And if they raise their hands, I said, can you do anything fun and productive? And they'd raise their hands. And I would say, you didn't date very much in high school or college. That was really hard. And then Windows 95 comes up and it makes it really easy. So I went out and I bought a home computer, 1996, because Windows 95 came out, plug and play. It was off to the races and I had a home computer and I had nobody to talk to because not many people had email or anything like that. And by default, I became the cyber guy in the office, 1997, 98. And that was not the cool, fun job to have. 
And back in the late 90s, what were we doing? We were chasing thrill seekers. We were chasing amateurs. I remember getting a call probably 1999-2000 from the National Infrastructure Protection Center. And it was a call on a Sunday night. And they told me that there was a young man trying to gain unauthorized access to the Cape Kennedy Space Center. And they gave me instructions, Jerry. They told me I needed to go up there and I needed to neutralize the threat. What did it mean to you when someone told you to neutralize a threat? <laughs> well, in my old FBI days, that means to go in and make an arrest. Yeah, well, I, it being the cyber guy back in the day meant you had to be social services worker and kind of yell at the kid. And I remember, go, I didn't want to go up there. It was up in the northern part of our territory. I didn't want to go by myself. So, you know, I spent a career tricking SWAT guys into doing things. I was not a SWAT guy. So I called one of my buddies up and I said, hey, I need you to take a ride with me. I need to go up to this university. We need to neutralize the threat. And he came running dressed up in his gear. And he was not very happy with me <laughs> that I tricked him into doing this. And I knew if I told him we were going to go up to a college student and yell at him who was 18 years old and tell him to knock it off. But back then, that was cybercrime. We were chasing thrill seekers, amateurs. And then 1999, 2000 or so, cyber took a really sinister turn because we started dealing with e-commerce. Things were going on credit cards. I spent a couple of years being the cyber guy in the office after September 11th. As you are aware, you know, the role of the FBI changed quite dramatically. And I started working a lot of terrorism cases and still kept my hand in cyber. In 2003, I was promoted to FBI headquarters. I had zero aspirations of going into the management program. But in 1997, I got sent to the Olympic Park bombing investigation. And that's where I met my wife, who was from Homa, Louisiana. And I brought her up to upstate New York. And that's when I learned that Southerners have an allergic reaction to 197 inches of snow. <laughs> and... So the whole management thing sounds like it was really a, a, a way to get a, a, an office of preference transfer. And your office of preference was anywhere but upstate New York. Well, that was not hers. I was very happy being a street agent. So uh, I put in for a couple of different jobs. I put in for some jobs with the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force. And then I put in a job to become a supervisor in the FBI's newly formed cyber division. Because in 2002, the FBI formed a cyber division to work on a national cyber strategy because the cyber was starting to get out of control. And I took that job in December of 2003. And one of my good friends and mentors at the time called me up and said, Scott, you're committing career suicide. You're going into the cyber world. And I went to FBI headquarters. I spent three years in the FBI cyber division looking for a place to land because I'm from New York City. My wife's from New Orleans. We had different definitions. And then all of a sudden, an opportunity opened up to become the supervisor of the FBI cybercrime squad in Nashville, Tennessee. And I had no idea where Nashville was located. And when that came out, my wife was all excited. And I'm like, slow down, Sparky. They probably don't have pizza. They probably don't have bagels or anything like that. And when I got here in 2007, I was the supervisor of our cybercrime squad. And we had seven FBI agents, a bunch of task force officers. It was a brand new form squad to address that cyber threat. And I would say about 90% of what we were dealing with at the time was working on child exploitation, child pornography, and the other 10% were computer intrusions. The more I spent here, we were going out, we were getting to know our area of responsibility. We were have, building relationships with the largest companies, the state entities, the biggest targets of uh, cybercrime. And I would say the turning point was probably the target breach. Because in 2014, Target was breached, and the phone never stopped ringing since then. And cybercrime has become a major priority for the FBI, and it has been for a decade. But today, we are seeing so much cybercrime. I retired in 2018, in January, after 30 years 
I retired on my 50th birthday when people, and I had a great career, Jerry. I loved every single moment of it. The highlight of my career was after spending seven years on the desk and giving that opportunity to go to the management program or stepping out of the management program, I chose to step out of the management program and spent the last four years of my career being the outreach person for the FBI's Memphis division. And in that period of time, in four years, I must have have done almost a thousand presentations to the private sector to teach them what I've learned in my career to prevent them from becoming the next victim. And while I was doing all these presentations, people would say to me, hey, can you come up to Louisville? Can you come here? And I'm like, I can't really do that because I'm an FBI agent. And then I lined up a bunch of speaking gigs. So if you ask me to define my job today, what is my role? I share with individuals and organizations what I've learned in my career to prevent them from becoming the next cybercrime victim. And I like to say that my life is kind of like a passion project right now. Because I am doing what I love. I am putting my passion in front of profit and I'm sharing with organizations, with individuals. I wrote a book called The Secret to Cybersecurity, which is a plan to keep you, your family, and your business safe from cybercrime. And now I'm booked. I go all around the country. I've sold a lot of books and things are really starting to heat up and get exciting in my life. Well, that's fantastic. And the, and the great thing is that I, I look at both of us kind of doing the same thing because, you know, the people that have been listening to this podcast know that this is a, a passion project for me too. You know, I'm, I'm dedicated to making sure the public knows exactly who the FBI is and what the FBI does by these case uh, reviews that I do. And so talking to you today is going to give them another look at the FBI, we talk about FBI agents working organized crime and kidnapping cases and, and being involved in drug investigations and, and corruption. And so now today, I hope you're going to share with us all of that experience and, and those security, cybersecurity briefings that you've given to corporations all around the world that will be able to get some of that from you today. So I'm excited. And that's why I'm excited to talk on your podcast to get in front of your listeners to share what I've learned. Could you start with some uh, examples? Because you mentioned the target breach, and there may be people listening who have no idea what you're talking about. Could you mention that and then give us some actual case studies? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what I'd like to dive in first a little bit is sit down and give everyone examples of things that happen in their life. Okay. Because so often I go to cybercrime briefings and everyone goes, it's not going to happen to me. So let's talk a couple of things here and some really quick stories that we can kind of dissect and then take some learning points because everyone here is going to get something out of it. It's going to impact us in our lives. What is one thing that a lot of people do? They go out and they buy a house. I've been through so many home buying processes in my career and my life. I haven't bought one in 10 years, but let's think about this. I have a young man and we'll call him Michael. Michael is 25 years old. And Michael and his fiance saved up $25,000 to purchase a house. So Michael's dealing with his real estate broker. So just imagine this. Right now, you're a home buyer. You're communicating with your broker. And all of a sudden, everything is good. You're about to do everything. You're about to get what they would call the HUD-1 form. And your broker calls you up and says, hey, you're going to get the paperwork. In the old day, how did we get the paperwork? We went to the broker's office or they mailed it. How do we get that information from our broker today? Email over the internet. Okay. So just think about this. The young man gets off the phone about six to eight hours earlier. And right now he gets an email from the broker with his form that shows you how much money is due and everything and where to send his 10% down payment, which is $25,000. And the email comes in and the email says, please send $25,000 to this bank account. And we'll just say it was at, let's just say it was at Citibank. So what do you think the young man does when he gets that email? He takes the information, he goes to his bank, and he sends a wire transfer for the down payment for his house. 
No. Is that ringing a bell? Yeah. Do, you, do you remember those days? Okay. No, because I wasn't wiring. Uh, I was getting a, a a check, a cashier's check from my bank and things, hand delivering Things it. are so much different now. Oh, it sounds because like now, you, well, this is the transactions that occur every day. So, Jerry, what do we do when we get an email from somebody we know and somebody we trust, and it's part of a legitimate transaction? He does what's in the instructions. So he wire, he goes to his bank. And he, he wire transfers X number of dollars to a bank account that's called XYZ escrow account. I don't know. That sounds familiar. Three days later, he gets a telephone call from his broker and says, how come you did not wire transfer the money? And he goes, what are you talking about? I did. I got your email. She's like, yeah, all right. And so she goes through her stuff and sends him another email. But this time, that email is to a completely different bank. And he looks at it and he goes over, well, what am I going to, what happened here? And what happened was somebody got into the email system and somebody sent an email out with a fictitious email directing him to send money to a different bank account. And you know what happened? He was out $25,000. Wow. Think about how often that happens. Happens every day. Cybercrime is such a large problem and it keeps increasing. Another situation that happens, happens quite frequently. We have a company, we have a brand new HR person is employed at their organization. Just been on for two or three weeks. All of a sudden, this person gets an email from their boss saying, I need you to provide me, I need you to provide me with the names, dates of birth, and social security numbers of all the employees because it's April 1st. What does a new employee do at an organization when they get an email from the boss asking for sensitive information? They answer it. They package up a list of names, dates of birth, social security numbers, which is typical employee information, and they send it to the boss. But what we don't see is that email really came from a West African cyber criminal who doesn't have any cybercrime experience. And at this point, he receives an email. He's probably sitting in a room with 40 other bad guys. And he jumps up for joy and he says, yes, I got it. And all the other bad guys turn around and they look at him and they're like, well, what do you have? And he goes, I have the names, dates of birth and social security numbers of X number of U.S. employees. And he goes, I have a sale today. Three for $10, seven for $20, because that's all our information is worth. And if this happens in the spring, what do you think? What website does he go to first? He usually goes to the IRS website. And do you think he pays your taxes? Absolutely not. My last year with the FBI, I had almost six companies call me up in one week because this happened to them. Wow. And this is why we keep seeing identity theft going on. And the organizations would all say to me, how did this happen? We don't provide our names, our email addresses to our employees on the website. And I go, well, we would go to that supercomputer that we always use with the FBI, which is called LinkedIn or Google. And if you use one of those, you can find every single employee within the organization. So when I'm talking to organizations, I'm like, are you training your employees? Do you ask for sensitive information? And let's go on to one other situation that we see happen quite often. All of a sudden, the CFO, which is the chief financial officer of an organization, gets an email from the boss asking the boss to pay a bill. What, what does the chief financial officer do when they get an email? Again, in, in, in that email, the boss asks them to do something. They do their job. And at that point, the bad guy gets into the email. He reads the emails. And we're going to talk about how we secure all this. But when the bad guy gets into your email, reads all the emails, if you're a publicly traded company, he's going to see how you do business. And in this situation, which actually occurred, the CFO gets an email from the boss. The boss says, I need you to make this wire transfer. 
And Jerry, once again, what do you think the chief financial officer does when they get an email from the boss? What do they do? Do what the boss wants. Okay. So now the chief financial officer goes into the system, the bank system, and makes a wire transfer. Now, the banks do a great job of not being liable because when they get that electronic request, the bank picks up the phone, the bank calls the chief financial officer and says to the chief financial officer, are you sure you'd like to make this wire transfer in the amount of $7.5 million? And what do you think the chief financial officer says? Please say no. Of course they say yes, because <laughs> remember, the boss just asked them to do a job. Wow. I touched almost $100 Seven million, $7.5 million. Wow. And the lar- this is called the business email compromise. And there's so much information about it on the FBI's website that it's almost a $12 billion scam. So let's think about these three incidents that happen and they play in and they over and over and over and they're happening to corporate America on a regular basis. And I always would say there were four elements that happened in every single one of these investigations that I dealt with. The first one, nobody ever expected to be a victim. They all said the same thing. I don't have anything that anybody wants. I would hear this with small businesses all the time. I would hear this with academic institutions, religious organizations. Nashville, Tennessee, the home of healthcare. We have 250 healthcare organizations, and most of them would say we're not as big as the big guys. The bad guys do not care who you are. They want your information that you have. They want your money, and they want access to your email and your social media accounts to trick other individuals. So no, and there's so many things that we could do and there's so many products that are available, but if we don't realize what is the most important information that we have within our organization, the bad guy's gonna get our hands on it. And so often people think, well, I have a bank account, I secure the bank account. I mean, let's just think about it. I'm a small business. If the bad guys get into my LinkedIn account, and they send a message out to all of my followers saying, hey, here is a PowerPoint presentation on how to keep yourself safe. Bad guys can infect all of my listeners. And we're going to talk about this later on how to keep yourself safe. So nobody ever expected to be a victim. The second thing is, the second element, and this is something that the private sector has a really hard time processing. When the bad guys steal your stuff and you think about what is your stuff, your money, your intellectual property, your brand or your reputation, when the bad guys steal it, the chances of law enforcement getting your stuff back is very, very challenging. You remember the days of being an FBI agent? Is that true or false, Jerry? Oh, it's very true, because that's what I worked during my career, economic fraud, scams and schemes. And, you know, very sadly, I had to tell the victims in many instances that getting their money back was not the objective of my investigation. And that is so hard to process. Now, I was out one day while I was an FBI agent giving a presentation, and there was a retired assistant director who heard me speak. And he said to me afterwards, he said, did you just tell the American public that we, the FBI, don't get our stuff back? And for most of my friends who know me from the FBI days, I kind of have Tourette's for sarcasm. Really can't help myself. And I looked at him right in the eye and I said, do you think these people are that dumb? And he kind of looked at me with this puzzled look because let's think about this. Office of Personnel Management, 21.5 million records stolen by the Chinese government. You were a part of that one. Can we get that back, Jerry? No. What about Anthem, our Blue Cross Blue Shield, especially if you were in Washington, D.C.? Target, Sony, J.P. Morgan, Equifax, Marriott, almost 4 billion pieces of information. Can we get that information back and return it to its rightful owners? Impossible. Absolutely. And with the business email compromise, which we do have the FBI kill chain, 
But right now, talking to my guys who are still with the Bureau, this West African fraud, you know what the problem that the bad guys are having? They have stolen so much money that's sitting here in the United States that they're having a hard time getting it out of the country. So I always tell individuals the chances of us getting your stuff back is very challenging. Leads me to point number three, which is why I joined the FBI. And I'm sure you dealt with it in your career. Bad people did bad things to good people. And if you couldn't get your money back, what did you do, Jerry? You put them in jail. Remember those days? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that a satisfaction? We get to fill out the 515s. Remember those? The stats? That's what we did. We put bad guys in jail. But crime was a localized problem. Today, we are dealing with adversaries from Asia, from Russia, from West Africa. They're all located all over the world. So this is the point in my presentation where when I'm up in front of 200 or 500 people, I go over and I ask them, I said, so far, what have we learned? We've learned that the bad guys steal your stuff. We're not getting it back. And the chances of us putting the bad guys in jail are really challenging. Let me ask you those two points. Are those true or false? Oh, those are true. But Scott, it makes it sound so bleak. I know. And that's why I always bait the audience. And this is the question that I always ask. And I'm going to ask you the same thing. How does that make you feel when a retired FBI agent tells you those two points? Makes me feel helpless and vulnerable. And I usually try to get the audience. I always try to get someone to go, I'm really angry. And I go, well, what are you angry about? They go, well, why are we paying taxes? Why are we paying the FBI at all? And uh, that's, the, that's the path I like to take them. Because when they tell me they're angry, you know what I tell them? I'm depressed. And that usually gives them a very puzzled look. I go, you know what I'm depressed about? I'm depressed that almost 90 to 95% of what I've dealt with in my decades with the FBI working cybercrime cases could have been prevented through basic user education, well-defined business processes, and using something called two-factor authentication to lock down your accounts. So let's think about that for a second. 90, 90 to 95%. So the last couple of years I was with the FBI, I would sit down with small businesses. I would sit down with nonprofit organizations. I would sit down with Fortune 500 companies, and I would feel so powerless because I really couldn't get their stuff back. It was so challenging to put bad guys in jail. And don't get me wrong, the FBI is still doing an amazing job putting the cyber criminals in jail. But a lot of these bad guys are located overseas. We don't have great relationships with a lot of these countries. They're not willing to extradite those people. And as I would sit down with an organization and they were totally crushed or an individual or a nonprofit organization like this elderly gentleman who wire transferred $700,000 because he was looking for a certificate of deposit and, and the bad guy scammed it out. It was never, ever the appropriate time when talking to a victim to tell them that, I'm so sorry you lost your $700,000, but it didn't have to happen. And that's why I wrote the book, The Secret to Cybersecurity. And that's why I go out now and I educate organizations and individuals on how not to be the next cybercrime victim. And that's what really I want to spend the rest of the time talking with you about is a couple of easy, quick fixes to be able to do to keep yourself safe. All right, let's do it. Well, if you got an email from your bank saying that your bank account was about to be locked out unless you provided your username, password, date of birth, social security number, blood type, and high school locker combination. Would you provide that information through email? No, but I know better. Uh, I, I actually get those several times a week, and I'm not joking. And most of the time, I don't even have an account at the bank that it's coming from. <laughs> now, let me ask you. Could I explain that to my 16-year-old? Hmm. I bet if I 
took his Beats headphones away from him, got him outside away from his iPhone, took him out to a steak dinner, I might be able to get across to him for 10 minutes. So maybe there's a chance we can do that. The banks are doing a great job. But let me ask you, do you you think I can explain that to my 83-year-old mother? Probably not. Absolutely not. If you ever meet my mom, don't tell her about the internet. I have kept her in the dark the entire time. I do have to tell you that, and I hope my husband's not listening, but a lot of times when those emails come in, I, I do most of the financial stuff and, and, you know, in the household. You know, he'll say, oh, we just got a, an email from the bank and, you know, our, our account, there's an issue with our account. I just say to him, delete it. Delete it. <laughs> but let me explain phishing 2.0. Let me explain the new type of phishing email that you are going to get. You're going to get an email. But there's a lot of times the bad guys are getting into our email accounts. They're reading all the emails. I'm going to show you how to lock that down easily. But they get into your email account so they know who you bank with. So all of a sudden, you get an email from your bank. It looks perfect. And it says, Jerry, we want to let you know that we've installed a new security algorithm on our system. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. And this algorithm has picked up what we believe is a suspicious transaction because at nine o'clock this morning, somebody tried to log into your bank account from an account in Nashville, Tennessee, and we know you're up in New Jersey. Now, if you read that one sentence, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? That they know who I am, that we have a relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's the next line of the email. Jerry, we're emailing you to tell you that at nine o'clock this morning, you attempted to do an ACH transaction at an ATM machine in the amount of $1,850 from a bank in Brentwood, Tennessee, or it could be you attempted to make a purchase at a Walmart in Smyrna, Tennessee. We're sending you an email because we think this is a suspicious transaction. Now what goes through your mind? Oh, yeah, definitely. This is real. They're they're, they're here to help me. Here's the next line of the email. This is the Jedi mind trick. Gary, we believe this is a fraud. However, if you actually are in Brentwood, Tennessee or Smyrna, Tennessee, and you did these transactions, we don't want to interfere with your day. So if you don't contact us in 90 minutes, these transactions will go through. Now what goes through your mind? Now you got the pressure. You've got to act. You've got to act now. So what do the bad guys do? If this is a fraud, all you need to do is click on a link in the email or call the 1-800 number. You have two options. What's a majority of the population going to do? They're going to click. Okay. They're going to click on the link. Now, when I do these and I'm in person and I'm walking around, I always get the same looks from a couple of people and they go like this. I would never click on a link in an email. I'm going to call the 1-800 number. And when you call that 1-800 number, you will get the only perfect English speaker from somewhere in Eastern Europe with a Boston accent who is going to say to you, all you need to do is click on the link. And when you click on the link, because now you spoke to a person you're going to enter in your username, you're going to enter in your password, and a screen's going to pop up and it is going to say, you have nothing to worry about, this transaction has been canceled, and you go through your day. But what you don't see is the bad guy just stole your username and password. And now he can log into your bank account. And Jerry, what can a bad guy do if he logs into your bank account? He can get a lot of money. Yeah, or log into anything. But the banks have some a system to keep the bad guys out. And that system is if they, if you log into a bank in your bank account or your credit card from a machine that it doesn't recognize, it is going to give you a challenge question. Are you familiar with challenge questions? Oh, yes. I, I definitely have them on my bank. And it's irritating when I use my iPad or my iPhone instead of my laptop because that question always comes up. And what are some of the bank challenge questions? One of my questions is, what's the name of my dog? What's my mother's maiden name? Where did I get engaged? Where did I have my honeymoon? And how much of this stuff people uh, are sharing on social media? Oh, that's a good question. 
I would, well, I would almost imagine, all of it. Yeah, I would imagine a lot of it. Yeah. So as I always tell people, my friends and my family, look, and I teach this to my 13 year old and 16 year old in life. We do not lie except when it comes to challenge questions. Challenge questions do not have to be real. You just need to remember them. Let me give you another scenario that probably comes across in all of our lives. Picture it is December 21st, and you get an email that comes from Amazon saying that your package has been delayed in shipping. What percentage of the population do you think is waiting for a package on December 21st? 99%. Yes. And at that point, that's what the bad guys are doing. So one of the biggest takeaways that we have to do is we need to think before we click. We need to become a human firewall. We need to examine our emails. Are they asking us to click on links? Are they asking us to share our passwords? Are they doing things like that? So absolutely important because you are the first line of defense and you cannot trust products or services to really save the day because let's just think about it. All of a sudden, the bad guys get access to your cell phone number. You get a text from your insurance company or you get a text from your bank. Did I give the bank my cell phone? Well, I must have. So we have to think about this all the time. They're going to call us. They are going to text us. They are going to email us all the time. Very important. When you get an email and they're asking for sensitive information, they're asking for your bank account, they're asking for your routing number. I have another quick story on a company that how they got scammed and suffered a major financial loss. The CEO of the company got an email from somebody he knew and somebody that he trusted. He got an email. It was a PDF file, which we all get. He clicked on the PDF file. There was no malware. And malware is the malicious code when we have a technical conversation that infects your computer and it steals information. There was no malware, so the intrusion detection system let it in, and it turned into a web page. That web page said, you have a very important DocuSign document. Are you familiar with DocuSign, Jerry? Yes, I actually signed a DocuSign document uh, about a month ago. Perfect. We get them all the time. If you don't know what they are, they are, it's a platform for secure communication. So all of a sudden, the CEO of the company gets a DocuSign document and the web page comes up and it says, in order to read this document, you need to authenticate with your Microsoft 365 username and password. I'm going to quiz you right now. And I didn't know the answer either, Jerry. So I'm not putting you on the spot, but I am putting you on the spot. Do you know, is it true or false? Do you need to authenticate with a username and password to open up a DocuSign document? Well, the fact that I just signed one about a month ago, then I know the answer is no. No. But when I go over and I talk to organizations, and I talk to a lot of organizations, and they all say, no, that's not true. And I go, Uh, Do you train all your employees to do that? Do your parents know to do that? Does the average person know to do that? No. So the CEO enters in his Microsoft 365 credentials. Nothing happens. He enters in, then it says, if that doesn't work, enter in your Gmail credentials. He enters in his Gmail credentials. That doesn't work. He gets another message and that says, enter in your iCloud credentials. None of that works and he moves on to the next thing. But what we don't see is behind the scene, a bad guy has just captured his username and password for his email and he has not secured his email with two-factor authentication, which I'm going to explain. Jerry, what happens when the bad guy steals the username and password for the CEO of an organization? What can he do? Oh, he has access to everything, I would imagine. So now, yeah. So now he logs in to the email account and think about this as if this is your Gmail account or if this is your personal Outlook account, you don't even have to be a Fortune 500 company. And now our email is connected to something that it wasn't connected to many years ago. And what's that? Our OneDrive. Are you familiar with OneDrive? Yes, I have that. And now let me ask you, what do you think a CPA keeps in a OneDrive account? I would think 
every single document and financial records belonging to the company. And what do you think a lawyer keeps in that? Yeah, a healthcare them. company. Yeah. Everything. Yep. Now the bad guy has just got in and stole all that information. Yeah, so something that is there as a convenience for the person who is responsible for that account, for those files now available to the bad guy. Absolutely. But now it gets worse. Now yeah. you have a data breach. The bad guy sends out an email. This was from a CPA firm. It goes out to all of his clients, which was about 15,000 of them. A majority of them were older clients. And it said, you have a very important DocuSign document from your CPA. Let's think about this. What percentage of elderly cl CPA clients know that they didn't have to provide their username and password? Probably a very small percentage. They, they all give it out, and now the bad guy is able to get access to all these accounts, and that is what it is causing so much financial fraud. And we're going to talk about how to secure that. The other important point that I really want to make is password reuse is such a big problem. What do you mean? Using the same password for all of your accounts? Multiple platforms is an incredibly huge problem that causes so much financial loss. The easier we make it for ourselves, the easier we make it for the bad guys. Well, one of the things that I've noticed a lot when you open an account with a retailer, nowadays they ask if you want to log in using your Facebook or your Google account information. What do you think about that? I talk about this in so much detail in the book. I'm completely against that. And, and I'll give you the example here. Marriott just got breached with 500 million usernames and passwords. Uh-oh, I'm a Marriott. <laughs> I'm a Marriott account owner. Okay. Do you remember what did Marriott tell us that we needed to do once we were breached? I don't know if you remember that. Change our account? So, yeah, change our username and password. Mm-hmm. So let's just assume that all Marriott users change their usernames and passwords. Let's just even say that there was no credit card information or anything stolen, no personal information, which I don't think is the case. But let's just assume all 500 million people change their usernames and passwords. What's the problem? What percentage of Marriott users do you think either have an iPhone, an iPad, or a Mac computer? Let's just say it's 10%. Okay. Let's even go lower. Let's say it's 5%. I don't know. Maybe it's 30. Maybe it's 90. What's 5% of 500 million? Mm. Besides a lot. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> really a lot. And I guarantee you 99% of Mac and Apple users go like this. I have a Mac. I don't have anything in the world to worry about because Macs don't get viruses. Well, I got good news nobody's hacking a Mac. Well, they're not really hacking the Macs. Why is that? Because 60 to 70% of the population is using the same password for multiple platforms. So what does that mean? All the bad guy needs to do is get access to your 60 to 70% of Mac users are using the same password that were part of the Marriott breach. Now the bad guy, all he needs to do is steal your username and password, and he is able to get access to your account. And what happens if he gets access to your Mac account? He's going to get access to every single thing on your computer, yeah. on your iPhone, and what do we all have? sensitive information. You know, that leads me to a question because actually on my laptop, you know, for my convenience, if I open any account and I have lots of accounts because of, you know, doing the podcast and, and writing books, I have so many different accounts right now on my laptop, you know, there's the convenience of as soon as I log on, it automatically fills in my username and, and password. And because of that, even though I'd like to get my laptop serviced, I'm not taking it in to get service because I don't know how to get rid of, at least temporarily, all of that access to all of my accounts. Yeah, that's a challenge. And there are certain accounts that I definitely save my username and password for. But here's your homework. You need to identify what are your mission critical accounts. So what's mission critical? Your email is mission critical. Anything that you use to communicate, your bank accounts are mission critical. To register your website, your GoDaddy account is mission critical. 
your iPhone, your telephone accounts, I think we all have between 15 to 25 mission critical accounts. Your, your Verizon account. You don't, you want to keep the bad guys out of it. Anything that is a cloud based account. My QuickBooks is mission critical. My Salesforce is mission critical. And then we have to come up with a system to change our usernames and passwords. In the old days, or I should say it like this, my son Aiden was born in 2005 and Quinn was born in 2002. Do you think I ever used those as passwords? Oh, yeah. Of course. Why did I do that? Because it was easy for you to remember. So now we have to come up, and I don't do that anymore, but we need to come up with separate passwords for our mission-critical accounts, and this is the criteria. A good personal password should be at least 12 characters in length. If you want to go super secure, you want to do 15. And in my opinion, in my personal opinion, they should be uppercase, lowercase, special symbol, and a number, and no dictionary words at all. So we, you are New York Giants fan, number one, not a good password. We need to come up with a system. I talk about that in the book. I have an easy system where I come up with passphrases that I use to jaunt my memory. I kind of use the same special symbol and a number. And I write the phrases down and I keep them in a secure place at home. This way, I don't need to know all of my mission-critical passwords at one time. Is this a pain in the butt? Yes. Will it keep you secure? Yes. Is it scientific? Absolutely not. But how many times have I seen people use the same password from one account, the bad guy steals it and rips off all of your money? So that is another really big takeaway. Well, I will say this, that I do have, I do use the same password or variation of that same password for a lot of things, especially when it relates to, you know, the podcast and my website. My bank account password and username is totally, totally unique and different. But that also means, though, that I may have even varying my basic username and password, I, I actually, I'm looking at a piece of paper right here that has, I would say, more than 150 different accounts and the passwords and usernames for them. It's written down. That's course, great. Well, I don't know if it's great because it's actually on my OneDrive too because... <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that. Well, that's the next thing over here because... Are you familiar with something called two-factor authentication? Yes. Many of my accounts that ask for two-factor authentication. Well, when I go out and I do a presentation, my numbers are getting better, but only 20% of the population is using that on their personal accounts. So if you create a great 20-character password and you type it into a phishing account, the bad guy steals your 20-character password. And then he logs on remotely. So that is why we need to use two-factor authentication on all of our platforms. And there's a great website out there, and it's called, it's www.2-T-W-O-Factor-F-A-C-T-O-R-A-U-T-H.org. And it shows you what websites have two-factor authentication. So let me give your users a quick, really, rundown on this that'll take a couple of minutes because not having two-factor authentication is something that almost all of my victims had in common. So you're going to go to your mail settings. Now, for your email accounts, you should be using either a Gmail account, an Outlook account, or an iCloud account. I do not recommend Yahoo, and I do not recommend AOL. If you're still using AOL, it's time to grow up and get a good email. Why would we not use Yahoo? Because they got breached a couple of times and every day we're finding out there's more emails that have been lost. 3.5 billion was the latest number from Yahoo and we've seen tons of breaches on AOL. So those three emails that I gave you are very, very good and very secure. So when you have one of these accounts, you're going to go to the security setting, you're going to go to options, You're just going to check a box. 
Then it's going to ask you to do something you're not going to want to do. And it's going to say, enter in your cell phone number. In order for this to work, you have to provide your cell phone number. There's an authenticator app, which I highly recommend, but I want you to do this first on your cell phone. Then you'll go over and do the more advanced way to do it. So you're going to enter in your cell phone number. It's going to log you off. Then you're going to log back in with your username and your password. And then you're going to get a message on the screen. It's going to say, please enter in your six-digit verification code, which is sent to you via SMS text message. And now you're going to get a text message on your cell phone, which you're going to enter into the computer. And it's going to say, would you like this device to remember you? You're going to say yes. If you're at a public library, which I don't think anyone does that anymore, you would say no. It's only on a trusted device. Then you're going to do it on your cell phone. You're going to do it on all of your trusted platforms. This way, this will keep the bad guys out of your accounts. When does it become a pain? When I go up to New York and I visit my family and I need to access my G drive on my sister's computer, I enter in username and password and it says, please provide random six-digit code. And then I remember I don't have my cell phone with me. So without my cell phone, I cannot access the platform. Jerry, is that kind of a pain? Yeah, a little, but it may be worth it. Yeah, it is, it's a pain. But let's go through the test over here. Right now, you have just done this on your, all of your accounts. And you're going to go to twofactorauth.org. You're going to set it up. Right now, you have just received a random six-digit text message from Gmail, but you're not logged into Gmail. What does that mean? Somebody just tried to log into your account. But the fact that you had two-factor authentication, it saved the day. It kept the bad guys out. iTunes has that same verification, and they'll actually tell you somebody in New Jersey is trying to log on. It does make you feel very secure. Yes, it also concerns you too, because how'd they get your password? That's a whole nother thing, but they may have stolen it from AOL or Yahoo or someone. That is why we can't have the same passwords for mission-critical systems. So my wife got a random six-digit text message from Uber about a month ago. She said, what did that mean? I said, somebody got access to your password on Uber. She's like, is it a big deal? I go, well, not really, as long as you're not using that password for other platforms. That's when she got upstairs and she ran because she realized that she was using that same password for another account. So that is why it's so important that we set up two-factor authentication because the bad guys are going to steal it. There's another thing that we need to do. We need to freeze our credit. Because at the end of the day, the bat, we can do everything in our power to stay safe, but other third parties, unfortunately, are going to lose out information. And that information is going to allow the bad guys to open up credit accounts. I have a friend of mine who is a former federal prosecutor. He created a great website, which I'm going to give to you. It's called www.frozen, F-R-O-S-E-N. PII.com. Go onto that website. Make sure that you freeze your credit. So let's kind of summarize what we've talked about right now. We need to go out. We need to think before we click. We need to think before we act. We need to identify what are the mission critical accounts in our lives that have that information. You did a great job, as you talked about earlier. You knew that if something bad happened to your account, you could go back in time with that product you talked about. We need to have separate passwords for our mission critical platforms, and we need to use two factor authentication when available. Having those little steps will have reduced quite a bit of risk in your life. Let me ask you, Jerry, how much money do you need to go out today and spend for your users to keep themselves safe? Well, I guess if you're working with the companies and their two-factor authentication. You're having a hard time with that one today. Two-factor authentication is free. Yeah, if you do that, it doesn't cost you anything. 
that's what gives me job satisfaction. And that's what I go around the country and I talk about. And that's what I wrote in my book, The Secret to Cybersecurity, that all I've done is taken what I've learned. So if your users are looking for a book about an FBI agent who saved the day and got a lot of people's money back, don't read my book. If you want to read a book about an FBI agent who put a lot of bad guys in jail, again, don't read my book. I don't think I'm doing a good job of selling myself here. So people always say to me, why would I read your book? Because I wrote a book to share my experiences with non-technical people on steps that they could take to prevent themselves from becoming a victim without spending money. And this is my pure passion project. This is what I've been working on. It's my opportunity to take what I've learned to prevent people from becoming victimized. So we talk about all these different things that you can do. And then we talk about the steps you need to take when you're buying a house and how not to become like that young man who lost his money. We talk about dating scams, which is such a huge problem out, a huge problem today. We talk about the business email compromise, how to prevent that. We talk about keeping your parents safe. We talk about keeping your kids safe. I take everything that I've learned in my career and I talk, there's one thing I don't talk about is keeping your computer safe. If you don't do what I tell you to do for free, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on keeping yourself safe, you still will become victimized. The big takeaway that I want people to realize today is that we fail to see the lack of sophistication that is required to commit cybercrime. We're not talking about data breaches. We're not talking about the secret to securing your Fortune 500 company or your enterprise. We're talking the secret to cybersecurity, which is keeping yourself and your business safe. And that's how I spend the majority of my time in my retirement. And it's not really retirement at all because I'm busier now than I ever have been in my career. And I just wanted to share this with you and your audience. Well, Scott, I have what I call the FBI Reading Resource, which is a list of books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. And I have added your book to my FBI Reading Resource. So for those of you who are a member of my reader team, you have access to that list. I'm also going to put links to your website, which is scottagenbaum.com. And there's also a website just for the book, which is the secret to cybersecurity.com. So I'll have links to everything with the show notes for this episode so people can click on those links to get more information about you and about your book. And there's a contact form on my website. And if anyone wants to send me an email, I've broken down a quick list of 15 or 16 points. I know I should know that. And it's just kind of an outline of what I talk about, and it's an outline of the book. So I just wanted to share that with anyone here who wants to get in touch with me. All right. Well, before you go, though, I mean, it's been fascinating talking to you about cybersecurity. And you've already shared, you know, when you joined the FBI and, and, and why you joined the FBI. Oh, well, no. Did you tell us why you joined the FBI? No, I didn't. And that's a whole nother funny story. (laughs) Well, why did you join the FBI? I joined the FBI as part of my mom's grand plan to keep me out of jail. Because I started in the FBI at age 20 when I graduated community college. And I wasn't doing very well. She got me a job as a clerical employee for the FBI, and I started in 1988 as a GS3 file clerk in the New York City field office, and I was surrounded by such positive role models with the FBI agents and the professional support employees that I worked with over my six years in the FBI. Because of them, I got my act together. I went back to college. I finished up a bachelor's degree at City College of New York. And then I started working on an MBA in finance and technology. And I became an FBI agent. 
So if it wasn't for my mom really pushing me and trying to find a good place for her son who didn't do very well in community college because my mom was a single parent who worked really, really hard. And she said to me back when I started in 1988, she goes, it's going to be a great place. You're going to work with professional people and you're going to have health insurance benefits and you're going to have a pension. And I kind of laughed. And today, I've been able to have such a great career, worked with so many cool people, got an opportunity to give back. And I know the FBI has been under a lot of controversy lately, but I would not trade my almost 30 years with the FBI for anything in the entire world. I love it. I'm involved in the InfraGuard program, which is the FBI's public-private alliance. I've stayed active as becoming the president of the Middle Tennessee InfraGuard chapter. And I cannot say enough good things about the FBI for young people who are looking for such a fulfilling career. Well, I usually ask my guests for the last word. Is that your last word? That is my last word. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Scott Augenbaum. You'll find an image of his book cover and a direct link to where you can purchase that book. There are also links to FBI website articles on cybercrime and business email compromise, cyber-enabled financial fraud. A really interesting report. Of course, there's a direct link to Scott's website and to his 14 cybersecurity tips. Oh, and also he mentioned that Frozen PII, the free consumer resource designed to help people protect their stolen identities in this episode's show notes. I also have a link to that website. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or anywhere you listen to audio. I also want to remind you that I have FBI Retired Case File Review stickers and buttons available on my website. I have packages ready to send out as soon as I get your order. This podcast is where I talk about true crime. But if you also enjoy watching crime dramas and reading crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team. When you do, you'll get a copy of my FBI reading resource, which is a list of all the books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. True crime, memoirs, and crime novels. Soon, you'll be able to pick up a copy of my nonfiction book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. Coming soon to all stores where books are sold. It's a 55,000 word expanded version of my popular FBI reality checklist. If you enjoy police procedurals, I hope you also consider picking up copies of the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. The crime fiction series features Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption and Redemption. The books are available as ebooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. I want to thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.